Gospels for the preaching of God's Word. We're in the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament uh, at the end of chapter 11. A long section, a hard section where Jesus has hard words for religious people, for churchgoers, for his own Jewish people, and for us. As you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream. It's wonderful what technology can do, but it's not the same as being here, so we invite you to Clifton Park Community Church on Moe Road, exit uh, 9 off the Northway. Come and join us uh, and be among God's people here. We'll be reading beginning in verse 37 through the end of the chapter, chapter 11. In the context, Jesus had just been speaking about uh, being the light that brings light to individuals, even though some are refusing it. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Thus far we read in God's word, may God bless it to all who hear Believe and obey. Amen. Hard, hard words. We don't often quote to one another the woes of Jesus. Which is odd because we're the religious types that are more vulnerable to the sins he pronounces. Let me ask this question by way of introduction. What's the biggest danger facing the church of Jesus Christ in these days? Some might answer it's secular hostility as the the culture seizes more uh, authority and tries to exert more authority over churches and families and individuals and denies freedom of religion. Could be secular hostility. It could be the spread of Islam or other false religions. That's the case in many parts of the world. But at this turning point of the Gospel of Luke, we're at the midway point, and Jesus is kind of taken off the gloves in his mission. He's 
declared the good news. He's called people to repent and believe. He's now going after a big problem amongst his people then. And it points to the problem here. As preacher Phil Riken says, from what Jesus says here, the gravest danger facing the church today is from theologically informed, religiously active, morally conservative people whose hearts are far from God. Nothing is deadlier to the life of true godliness, says Riken, than spiritual hypocrisy. That quote made me uncomfortable because I think I'm theologically informed. I'm religiously active. I'm morally conservative. So were the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus wants to peel back those superficial measures of righteousness that can fuel self-righteousness, and he wants us to look at the heart. Today's like your annual physical, where they say, take all of that off and put on the Johnny. We're going to check and probe your whole body. This is a spiritual word from the Lord to those who practice religion to see if we see ourselves clearly, to see what our hearts are like before a holy God. It's a hard word, but it's true. And Jesus here is speaking as the greatest of God's prophets, the pinnacle of God's revelatory word. And as the prophets, major and minor, chastise Israel and said, come on, stop with superficial religion, give me your heart, so too Jesus The great prophet speaks to the people who would follow after him. Saying this is what you need to watch out for. Spiritual hypocrisy. It's a long section of verses. And we're not going to define every term. But we are going to see the points that Jesus makes. And we'll group it. The first three woes and the introductory rebuke are to the Pharisees. A scribe speaks up, and we'll define who these people are, thinking to calm Jesus down. (laughs) And Jesus speaks to him and his kind. So the scribes will be our second heading, but the third heading belongs to Jesus. And what we see him doing here, that should draw us to him. So you can see on your sermon outline, we're going to start in verse 37 with the folly of those Pharisees. I went back and added the word those Pharisees because not every single one of the Pharisees was corrupt and ugly. We have the story of Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, some godly men are there. But Jesus speaks to the type. And he gives an initial penetrating rebuke. Jesus starts the ball rolling. And then he also gives three woes. So four points for the Pharisees. First, and I've tried to get a handle on it with these titles. First, he points out they have a wrong focus in the practice of their faith. A wrong focus, a wrong aim, a wrong attention. Pharisees were obsessive and extreme in their religious practices. Not just washing up for lunch, but a ceremonial washing before you come in. They had an extra bit of water set aside so that just the spiritual uncleanness might be symbolically removed as you entered the room and entered the meal. The Reformation Study Bible says Pharisees were scrupulous about the rules for outward ceremonial cleanness. Yet people could keep them all and still be inwardly defiled. These are the Pharisees. Jesus speaks to them. Jesus knew they had the wrong focus. When Jesus agreed to go to lunch and walked in and saw perhaps the pomp going on with this extra ceremonial washing, he knew his own hands were fine. That wasn't required in the law of God. That was a man-made tradition for these show-offs. Jesus perhaps intentionally didn't participate and sat down. And his host was provoked. Great application there for Christians to go ahead and live by the gospel. Not by works. Jesus sits there 
and his host is staring at him, glaring perhaps. The Pharisee was astonished to see, verse 38, that he did not wash before dinner. This is the ritual, ceremonial, extra washing. Nothing to do with hygiene here, boys and girls. Do wash your hands before you eat, especially boys and girls. But Jesus has a significant purpose and plan here. And then he begins speaking. He addresses that glare. He addresses the implications that were coming his way. And what does he say in verse 39? The Lord said to him, notice how Luke reports the account. This isn't just Jesus with table banter. This is the Lord speaking. The Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. He says, your focus is all wrong. You're focusing on the externals and not the internals. Jesus sees, he looks past the squeaky clean outside of these men and declares that they're full of greed and wickedness. Can you imagine going to dinner at a fancy home of a friend or an acquaintance or someone very important and then holding up the plate and say, this is putrid, this is all spoiled, this is stained, this is gross. That, that would be offensive. Jesus isn't holding up the plate. Jesus is pointing at the host. Jesus is pointing at a Pharisee whose heart was far from God. He declares their sin publicly. You see, the Pharisees were quick to judge about hands and utensils, but they didn't really pay attention to their hearts. They were careless with their hearts. And here in the scriptures, Jesus calls them out. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? We are more than bodies and public facades. We have a soul. And the heart matters, as we'll see in just a moment. In fact, Jesus quotes uh, verse 41 because he's continuing that thought about the inside and the outside. But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. He's saying, if you want to do something outwardly that is appropriate, you should give and perform outwardly what comes from the heart. Not just perpetuating your facade of customs. So verse 41 is about that connection. It's not the outward that justifies the inward. It's the the heart that's right with God that produces fruits and generosity as in the giving of alms and outward religion. You can be religious, but that alone does not determine anything. It's the heart. Verse 41, John Calvin says, Christ, according to his custom, directs the Pharisees from ceremonies to charity, declaring that it is not water, but liberality that cleanses both men and food. He says, you guys, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You've got your spiritual tidy-up checklist, but it's not God's checklist because you've added so much. So the first shot across the bow with these fol- these, the folly of these Pharisees is that their hearts were not right. Those Pharisees have a wrong focus. Secondly, and we get to the first woe in verse 42, Jesus says, you have the wrong priorities. You have the wrong priorities. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, that's giving, giving back to God, the tenth. You tithe, mint, and rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Verse 42 is a very clear argument of what Jesus is talking about. Your religion appears to be in good order because you're tithing. Tithing's a good thing, giving a tenth, your first fruits to the Lord, to the work of God, to the temple or to the kingdom. And Jesus points out that they are tithing even their herbs. I made some bacon and eggs for breakfast and 
trying to cut down on my salt. I, I didn't put salt on the eggs. I put some thyme. I have some fresh thyme, and you sprinkle it, and if you crush it as it goes down, it, it really, the flavor releases on the eggs. I can't imagine taking all those little things and trying to take a tenth and set it in a pile for God and, and to do that. And even the, the rue that's mentioned, the second one, mint and rue in the ESV, that refers to an herb or a spice that was exempt from tithing. The traditions of the Pharisee says, oh, you don't have to go that far. And it was listed as exempt. But these Pharisees wanted to cover all their bases, so they even did that. And people knew about it, I'm sure. You have the wrong priorities, Jesus is saying. Your excessive tithing, even of things which were declared exempt, doesn't get you anywhere with God. You're neglecting the bigger commands of God. You're majoring on the minors, as many have said, and they miss the major things altogether. What were the major things that Jesus points out? He points out two, and they really connect with the two great commandments of the law of God. He says, you have neglected justice and the love of God. Justice, we might think in terms of our horizontal relationships with our neighbors, with other men, loving men, love men and love God. Those are the two great commandments. You're missing it. You Pharisees, you, you people who walk so publicly that others would notice you and follow your example of godliness, you're missing the boat on the most important things. Today, this isn't a history lesson about Pharisees and their spices. This is a word for the people of God today in this building. Because as religious people, some of us are prone to fall into the wrong focus or the wrong priorities. We really like this part of our faith, so we major on that, and we may be neglecting other parts. It's all too common across the whole spectrum of Christian churches, and even among evangelical churches, some make one aspect of our faith their mission and neglect others. Whether it's opposing sin and perhaps failing to love the sinner or bring them the gospel. Let me just ask, rather than give examples, let me just ask, is God pleased with your priorities. Are your priorities in alignment with his? When God gives commandments and when Jesus himself summarized the demands of God upon us into two major umbrellas, it ought to be our priority to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. And to focus on peculiar aspects of our faith and practice. And to measure our righteousness by those peculiarities is dangerous. Jesus calls out these religious leaders for their wrong priorities. He goes on, he's got two other woes. And I call the second woe in verse 43, they have the wrong audience. They are living and practicing their faith for the wrong applause. What does 43 tell us? Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Short and to the point. You live out your faith for the wrong audience. Just because men might applaud you, that doesn't necessarily please God. In the eyes of fellow Israelites, these Pharisees were the holiest people around. These Pharisees were, were keepers of righteousness. They, they were models for many things. Jesus points to their righteousness as pretty much above the bar outwardly. And then said, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs. And the only way you can have righteousness that exceeded the Pharisees was to have a fullness of righteousness imputed 
to you through Christ to be made new within and without. They were righteous. They had conformity to the law outwardly. But there was more. And if they're living for the wrong audience, they're falling short of the glory of God. They they have vanity and conceit that Jesus exposes here. Uh, Their spirituality was for the eyes of men, not for the eyes of God. You love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They suppress the truth by living for themselves and thinking that their outwardness was adequate. What audience should they have lived for? Well, they should be living for God. Even as we sung in one of our hymns earlier this morning, or songs, God knows our heart. He knows every thought. He knows every word. God is the one to whom we give account. God is the one we strive to serve and please. He knows your behavior at church on Sunday. He knows your behavior in the back room at home when nobody's looking. He knows your behavior in the car on your commute when your road rage might come out. He knows when you're shopping and you covet. He knows all things in our hearts and minds. These Pharisees, these religious laymen of the Jews in the past should have known that. They should have known what God made clear through the writings of Samuel, when young David, the shepherd boy, was anointed to be king. Do you know the story that might make for your afternoon reading this Sunday? First Samuel 16, jot it down. You can go back and see how David was selected out of all his brothers. David had a big family, and most of the brothers were big and strapping fellows. Samuel went there to the house of Jesse to anoint a king, and he said, wow, look at these guys. We got king material here. Samuel was looking at the externals. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord, Jehovah, sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. That's why God picked David. He could see what others could not see. And when Jesus looks at the Pharisees, he could see what others did not see and calls them to account. This vanity, this outward formality doesn't cut it with God. One of the applications here for us is that the person in our midst who behaves in righteous, upstanding ways may yet have corruptions of heart we can't simply say as we look amongst ourselves who's the most godly person we 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 do wrong to judge simply by our eyes or say oh well that person's above reproach because they're always nice and well-dressed and carry their bible or whatever outward marks we see we can't look on the heart but we can watch For what the heart produces. These Pharisees had very little humility. And Jesus could tell from what came out of their heart what they were. There's another woe, the last woe, and perhaps the most serious woe in verse 44. The most serious woe in verse 44. Woe to you, still speaking to the Pharisees. For you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. Okay, how is that the most serious? Well, let's take a look. When we deal with literature, we always have to remember that it was written in a certain historical, cultural context. When we talk about context, it's not just the verse before and the verse after. It's also history and and the practice of that day. In our day, it's pretty hard to... To, to walk over a grave because we usually erect some kind of tombstone or marker. And you can see that, although some places the, the, the stone is flat. In the ancient world, when they buried, there was often just a stone on top. And because of the Jews' carefulness not to touch a dead body, they wouldn't touch a tomb. 
And sometimes in the ancient world to preserve the tombs or to adorn them or at least to mark them out so no one touched them, they would often paint them white. And it would stand out. Oh, there's a tomb. Let's go around. There's another charge in another passage about being whitewashed tombs. Here Jesus is talking about an unmarked grave. So this is a different angle. Here Jesus is saying, you guys that think you're holy and pure and should be in touch with the people, it is you who are corrupting the people. The effect of your life and ministry is negative. It's dangerous. Yeah, that would make this the most serious woe. He's saying to you Pharisees, it's not just that you're off and you need to fix. You are having a ripple effect that is corrupting others. Perhaps the scribes, perhaps the other followers. These unmarked graves. People are in touch with corruption and they're not aware of it right away. Jesus uh, knows that the eternal, internal spiritual corruption of the Pharisees uh, was dangerous. They're not the holy men of God that others believe them to be. They were merely self-righteous fools. That's Jesus' words, fool. And they cause defilement. Such hypocrisy is dangerous. It really is. When someone is harboring sin... There's a story of a church when we were very young in ministry back in Worcester, Massachusetts, and the pastor would be on some of the same committees as I and and his wife stopped attending church because one of the leaders of the church continually uh, was was picking on her and demeaning her, and uh, we said, we'll pray about that. And I was surprised just to, maybe not anymore, but just a, a couple months later, that particular church leader, his own sins and immoralities were made public. And it was a shame for the church, but something of a vindication to this woman. She couldn't understand where all this stuff was coming from. But he was like an unmarked grave. It was in a Baptist church. It was in a a church of evangelical people that someone, their inner corruptions, were flowing over onto others. But it's God's church. And he'll clean out as much as he needs to as he needs to. There is no perfect church. And not every church has those same severe problems. But what Jesus has said here by unmasking and challenging very intentionally these Pharisees is a warning to religious folks who would follow him, be careful against religious hypocrisy. It's folly and it's danger. Well, in verse 45, one of the scribes speaks up. Um, And I I prefer calling him scribes. The the word scribe is used near the end. Here, uh, the word is related to the Greek word for nomos or law. So lawyer is an accurate translation. But we have to remember, it's not an American lawyer, whether civil or criminal or whatever other types of lawyers there are. This is someone who is a lawyer with the law of God. So I think scribe reminds us of that if we call him a scribe. A scribe wasn't merely a secretary who inscribed notes. A scribe was a professional person. Let's take a minute to explain these two offices if we haven't yet. A Pharisee was like a a party or denomination. I don't want to say club. It was an organization, typically a lot of Jewish laymen as well as priests and others. Uh, Scribes could be Pharisees. It was adopting a way of practicing your faith that was pretty robust and extreme. The scribes were a profession. They were a profession. They were like the theologians or the seminary professors or the official expounders and teachers of the word of God. Calling them lawyers is fine about the law of God. Uh, Douglas Milne says the Pharisees were zealous practitioners of the law Well, the scribes that Jesus is talking about were legalistic interpreters of the law. Some scribes were Pharisees, not all Pharisees were scribes. I think you get the picture. So one of the scribes, 
who is also likely a Pharisee, says, Jesus, hey, you're going too far. You're getting insulting here. We're, we're feeling offended here. He tries to warn Jesus off. The Son of God, the Word of God, who speaks with authority that everyone seemed to recognize but these few. He says, you probably shouldn't say that. So how does Jesus respond to this warning from someone else at the, at the meal? Verse 46, and he, Jesus said, woe to you lawyers also. And he goes on and gives three more woes specifically to the lawyers and some big ones. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. That, would that even help? They don't even touch the burden. They don't even acknowledge the burden. The first woe of Jesus to the scribes is you are legalistic and not very loving. You are legalistic and not very loving. In their work in the law of God, they not only read it and studied it, they understood the verses, probably memorized parts of it, had access to all the scrolls. But what they came up with were additional traditions of men and interpretations that were burdens on these people. The word burden here is used in the book of Acts for a cargo ship getting rid of its cargo, getting rid of its burden. Why did they do that? Why would a cargo ship throw out its cargo? Well, because of the storm and they would all die if you didn't get all those heavy things out. Jesus is saying to the scribes, you're putting heavy things on the people of God going beyond the law of God. That's legalism. Adding to the law of God the ideas of men. And it was complicated. They had, for instance, the commandment about the Sabbath day. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy on that day. You should do no work. They had 40 definitions of work. I could probably come up, you know, I had economics, I studied this. I could probably come up with four, five, six, maybe ten definitions for work. That would be a lot. But they had over 40. And when it said to what was allowable for, for work of carrying a load, they had about a dozen things that could be permitted if you carried your wallet in a certain way, in a certain... And it was mind-boggling how complex it was. You had to be a lawyer simply to understand what the lawyers were telling you. And that is not what God intended. This legalism, this dumping on others in a heartless way, that is spiritual hypocrisy and spiritual abuse. I liked how uh, Phil Riken described the work of these scribes. He said, can you imagine, I like study Bibles. I commend study Bibles as long as it's from a reasonable source. It'll help you if the notes on the bottom can lead your thoughts. Can you imagine a study Bible produced by the IRS? Some bureaucracy with all sorts of minutiae and oodles and oodles of paperwork? Like when I file my income taxes, I think it's only a couple pages, the whole form. But there are a couple hundred documents backing up that form. See publication number. These scribes were were adding barnacles and barriers and burdens onto the law of God. And they did nothing to help. That is not what God wants from those who handle God's word. What did Jesus say? Jesus came as a teacher, right? Jesus explained the Old Testament, right? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he kind of made some things hard, like thou shalt not murder. He said, if you've, looked, if you've had anger in your heart against someone, you probably, you've committed that sin. So Jesus made it more serious and opened up the spiritual meeting, but he made it plain and clear. And then Jesus offers help. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For, says Jesus, you know what he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Following Jesus isn't necessarily easy, but it is so different from jumping through the hoops of legalistic leaders. These scribes, sit down, Mr. Scribe, you're as bad as the Pharisees. 
requiring all these extra things to be right with God. The second woe for the Pharisees, uh, verse 47 on through verse 52. This is the longest section in today's sermon. Jesus uh, is talking about these Pharisees and and how they honor the prophets. They're building monuments, and yet um, the Jews typically killed the prophets. Let's read 47 again and see. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses And you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Wow. Here what Jesus is charging him with is this. You may appear to be praising the dead prophets, but you resisted their words. That's the heart of it. The Jews of the past were well known for receiving prophets and for regularly abusing those prophets. You can read the Old Testament history. Some of these prophets got kicked around, thrown in pits. People didn't like what the preacher had to say. So they killed those whom the Lord sent. And Jesus, coming up in the Gospel of Luke, will read about the parable of the vineyard and how the owner of the vineyard sent representatives and eventually sent his son, and the workers in the vineyard killed them. That's this same point. Jesus is saying to those who handle the word of God, that you're really in rebellion against the very word of God as delivered by those prophets. Rather than saying, this is what Habakkuk said, this is what Amos said, this is what Micah said, this is what Obadiah wanted. Rather than holding forth the word of God, they decorated the tombs. They liked their prophets dead rather than alive and speaking. That's what Jesus is saying. It's mind-boggling when you see that the very ones entrusted with position of leadership and making God's word known didn't do that. Instead, they kind of adorned the place. My friends, the most important thing about Clifton Park Community Church isn't the color of our chairs, and I'm not bringing that up. It isn't the humidity level in the basement. It's what do we do with the word of God in this place? A true church is a church that is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We proclaim it, we learn it, we share it, and we live it. And all these woes, by the way, are particularly heavy in the ears of pastors and elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers those of us who have the privilege of knowing God's word and have been called to hold forth God's word, if that isn't first and foremost in our hearts and minds, if we're just building monuments and adorning things and not practicing, Jesus has a problem with us. Notice verse 49. There's a little phrase here, and and some of you may have already caught on, but let let me just explain it. The wisdom of God, Jesus mentions. Jesus is, is answering the objection that they had, and perhaps we have. Why did God send the prophets if people were going to kill them? Why, why did they have to die? Why did God send another prophet? Why did he send another prophet? Why did he send his son, whom they will also kill? Jesus says it's the wisdom of God. This is the will of God. This is the way that God's going to do it. He's going to bring his word despite those who kill the prophets and to bring conviction on those who rebel from the word. This is the way he will get the victory. And we see that most clearly in his son whom he sent. Hebrews starts by telling us in the past God spoke through prophets long ago. But in these days, he speaks through his son. How will they handle the son? 
They won't like what he says. They don't like what he says here. Do you know how this passage ends? They're triggered. They're ready to cancel him. The wisdom of God is at work, Jesus says. God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows what you're doing. These men, some of the men in that room, may have been those who raised their hand and voted to crucify Jesus. It was the scribes and Pharisees who came and took him by night and had a mockery of a trial at the Sanhedrin with the result that he would be turned over to die. And in Jesus' case, they weren't going to build him any monument. You can see where this goes. Jesus identifies this resistance to his word by those who are supposedly handling it. We don't usually question those folks. But Jesus says, if your heart isn't right with me, this is where it can go. The last woe, perhaps the worst charge for the scribes is in verse 52. It's brief and we can understand it quickly. Verse 52 says this. Woe to you, lawyers, those people who dealt with the law of God, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, you have the scriptures, you scribes, you study it. You're supposed to come up with the Bible lessons, and you're supposed to tell us what it's all about. You're supposed to give it out, organize it, and help us. But you know what? You've locked it away. You've taken the key, the the vital turning point of the scriptures that would free God's people. So that allusion to salvation and rightness with God. You've taken that key and gotten rid of it. You yourselves haven't entered in. Jesus is really accusing them of not being saved themselves. Scripture itself is the key. And the heart of scripture is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me take the first part. Even as Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15, he's talking to Timothy about the Bible, how you became a Christian. He says in 3.15, how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are the key to being right with God. Not your external traditions and behaviors. The scriptures, the truth will set you free. You scribes have bungled it and mishandled it. This is the key. You have not used it for yourself. Now, many of you in this room are not elders or pastors, preachers. How might you hinder someone How might you be in danger of this particular sin? Well, think about it. Whenever you don't keep the Bible front and center, if you're talking about the change God has made in your life and you never mention Jesus, or if you focus on the church business, or our church has lovely windows, or our church has this and that without talking about the gospel that our church has, maybe you're hindering or hiding the key If you add works to faith, if you tell people, well, if you come and if you read your Bible and if you give them this checklist, or perhaps if you confuse politics with Christianity, you have to vote this way to be right with God. There are many ways that we can hinder those who seek how horrible it will be for scribes on the day of judgment Let me end by talking about our Lord Jesus Christ here very quickly. He is the one in the midst of this picture that gives us hope. Let's look at three things about him. In the midst of all that hypocrisy, we see a truly righteous Savior at work. Number one, he dines with sinners. He engages sinners. He's there where the gospel is needed. The healthy don't need a physician. It's the sick. Well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He was dismissive of those who would resist his ministry. He went to those who were needy. He tries to bring the gospel there. He knows who these men are. He's there with purpose. He's not going there to participate 
in their pharisaical behaviors. He doesn't wash his hands. He's not going to kowtow to something that would undermine his gospel. But it is possible to be present with sinners in their place, at their functions, and not be sitting with them. Jesus is there on his mission because God sent him into the world to reach sinners. And says to you, so send I you. Go make disciples of all the nations. Not just the people who come to you, but go to them. Engage. That's by the grace of God. Secondly, Jesus speaks the truth. And he speaks the truth to the self-righteous. This is the hardest thing we have to do. The hardest thing I have had to do. I've done it many times over my 40 years of serving Christ. But probably more in the last two or three years than all the previous years before me. It's not easy. Because I am not Jesus. And when I try to speak truth to the self-righteous, it comes out of a fallible mouth from my own soiled hands and behaviors. It doesn't come from a place of perfection, but it's my attempt to steer the self-righteous, to warn them. The word woe, by the way, it's not a slam dunk in your face, dude. Woe is like the word alas. It's a lament. It's a lament that things are this way. Do you know the judgment you're incurring? Jesus speaks the truth to the self-righteous. He's trying to focus on the inner man more than the outer. It's very important that we see that and thank, thank him for speaking truth to all of us. And he summons us to repent and believe. God sent Jesus, like he sent the other prophets, to bring about change, to give hope. He directs them time and time again. We don't have time to go back through the text, but he says, focus on the inside, not just the outside of the cup. What is within you? And practice your faith from within. Strive to have a heart that's right with God. Repent and believe, which Jesus has said time and time and time again. Share the key of knowledge. Don't hide it. If you knew the scriptures, you would know me, Jesus said to them on many occasions. So what are our takeaways? Let let me exhort you in three actions. Number one, examine yourself first for signs of hypocrisy. Examine yourself first for signs of hypocrisy. Knowing I had this text, I had this duty. I've been praying much about the signs of my hypocrisy and I have been doing some repenting. I've been checking myself, but this is what we all need to do. The word of God is like a mirror. It shows us what needs to go, what needs to change. As Phil Reichen says, the gospel helps us to see ourselves the way God sees us. We have nothing to offer God. We're sinners, but we receive his grace. May we not puff ourselves up or delude ourselves or take comfort in our religious accurate accounts. We need to spend much time in the word and in prayer and there needs to be much accountability with others. Every Saturday that I'm able at noon, I get on a very brief Zoom call with other pastors around the country and we pray. I started this when COVID started. Back then we had 30 pastors, now we're down to a handful. And what are you preaching on? Great. Jacob's dream, hope that goes well. What are you preaching on, Dave? Well, Luke 11 and all these woes to my own congregation. And my brother said, you know, check yourself, but be firm with the truth. It was helpful. We need accountability with others. If you're checking yourself for signs of hypocrisy, turn to a believer you trust and pray about that. It's important. Jesus brings it up. Jesus spent a lot of time on this. Um, Examine yourself. Secondly, beware the practice of woeful religion. Beware. It's around, and it often comes from those whom you might least suspect it. 
It mattered to Jesus. Let his words guide us. Not simply to pronounce condemnation of others, but to seek to see behaviors change. Jesus brought these men to the pinnacle of repentance. What a great opportunity they had at that moment to say, Oh Lord, you know my heart. Forgive me. But it's rare. You try to rebuke someone in their self-righteousness, it's rare to see a response which only confirms, in many cases, the accusation. My final word to you and to me is to keep your heart in the grace of God. This is the wonderful safety net we have, isn't it? We are all prone to go the pathway of the Pharisee. So keep your heart in the grace of God, which reminds you that you're just a sinner. It's God's grace that makes us his. Not our works that make us his. Christ makes us his. In union with Christ, we are what we are. Paul was praying for Christians uh, often that they would keep themselves in the grace of God. The matter of the heart is what, when the church arose in Antioch, that's what the apostles said, remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast heart. That's what they prayed for the new believers in Antioch. We have our work to do. It's not always comfortable work, but it will conform us to Christ. It will bring blessing to us and to others if we hear, heed, and obey this word. Let me give Jesus the closing word. The one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the powerful words of the Bible. We're thankful that your Holy Spirit can bring conviction even when preachers stop preaching or our eyes turn from the page. Your word will accomplish what you send it to do. Father, may your word be at work in my heart, in me, and in the hearts and minds of those gathered here. Father, we are quick to point fingers. May we examine ourselves first and then help our brother. And may the gospel just shine in our midst as your grace does wonderful things. Freeze us from ourselves and from slavery to joy and liberty in the gospel. And Father, may this be attractive to the world as you draw men to Christ. We thank you and we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.